Hey, if you have your Bible, grab a Bible out, either in your seats or if you've got it on your phone or if you brought one with you. Matthew 17 is where I want us to turn this morning. We're going to be there in just a minute. 670 in these Bibles, if you're looking at those in, in your seat. Matthew chapter 17. Uh, we're going to take in another shot at this message. Uh, so several chapters before Matthew 17, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is, has been driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, out into the desert, and he's out there to spend some time alone with God. He's out there to, to fast and to pray and to prepare for ministry. And he faces intense hunger. He faces intense thirst and longing and just some wrestling of the soul, the dark night of the soul, if you will. And he also faces massive temptation by Satan. The Bible describes three separate temptations and tests, probably many more than that, but the Bible lists three of those for us. And the first of those is Satan comes to Jesus at the end of 40 days of fasting, of not eating for 40 days, and says, hey, there's rocks everywhere all around you. You're hungry. You're God, after all. Why don't you take one of those rocks and turn it into, into a loaf of bread? I know you said you're going to fast. I know you said you're going to give that up for God, but it's not really that big a deal. You're God. Just do it. Turn the rock into bread. And Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy, it takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. Now, my question for you, and you just answer for yourself between you and God, is do you believe that to be true? Uh, let, let, me, let me say it this way. Amy and I did some traveling over sabbatical. We had a, a break in the fall, and then, so we went to Israel for a trip. We also went to uh, New England, spent some time in New England. New England wasn't nearly as spiritual as Israel, but it was a lot of fun. I liked everything about New England except for the Patriots, so that was great, and we enjoyed, we enjoyed that. And one of the biggest focuses of our time in New England was food. We're, when we're on vacation, we're all thinking about food, Amy and I do. So breakfast would be provided by the place we were staying, the hotel or whatever. But almost immediately as we're driving out, going to the next place and checking off our list of all the places we're going to see, almost immediately we'd start asking each other about lunch. Like, what do you want to do for lunch? What do you want to do for dinner? Let's start talking about this. And so I'd be driving, Amy would be pulling up reviews on her phone, trying to figure out the exact place we could go. Always looking on the menu to see if there's fish tacos, because anytime you're close to the coast... Fish tacos in Tennessee, fish tacos on the coast are not the same product. So we're looking for fish tacos. And it was just a whole process because even though we had just eaten breakfast, even though we weren't yet hungry for dinner, we knew it was coming. We knew lunch was coming and dinner was coming. And we wanted something special and unique and tasty. So we thought about food all the time. Now, Jesus' day it was a little more complicated. They didn't have refrigeration they didn't have electric ranges or gas ovens. They didn't have Insta anything. Nothing was delivered or drive, driven through. So food was a major focus of every day. Jesus, I mean, Satan was right. Jesus could just snap his fingers and turn a rock into bread, but everybody else couldn't do that. For everyone else, they had to prep the dough and knead the dough and prove and bake and all the stuff. I've been watching the baking shows. So they had to do all those things to, to be able to do it. And if they wanted to add meat to it, the meat had to be caught or plucked or both, and it was a big process. It took some time, and food, therefore, was a major thought of every single day. And yet Jesus said, it takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. And I want to know, what would be different in our life if we believed that? If we really thought that the way we treat physical food and the way we treat spiritual food are kind of similar. 
Like if I thought about not only what am I going to eat for lunch today, some of you are beginning to think about that now, or maybe you've already put something in the crock pot or you're planning to go to this restaurant. You've kind of thought about it ahead of time. But what about if we thought about that spiritually? Like what spiritual nourishment am I going to get in the middle of my day? Or or tomorrow when you're at work and you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this for lunch. So you pack a bag with you or you're planning to go to this restaurant. Like what if you made spiritual plans that way? Like at lunch break, I need to get the Bible out and read a minute because I got to get some, I can't go all day without some food. Like what if we believe the words of Jesus? Or like if you ask yourself at night, so like to, you know Monday night, Tuesday night, you're, you're thinking uh, after work, I've got to go home and prepare food for my family because I can't, as a parent, I can't let my kids not have food. So what if we started thinking of spiritual food that way? I thought, what, what food am I going to bring into my kid's life tonight because I can't just let them go all night without some food? Now the gir- my girls will tell you, if you ask my family, I don't do this like I should. And I don't say that out of any kind of pride. Just, I'm wrong on that. Because Jesus makes it very clear that when he didn't get spiritual food, that was a, a level of urgency at least as high, if not higher, than the level of urgency he had around not getting physical food. And I think we've gotten that all backwards. Hang on to that just a minute. If you get your Bible to Matthew 17, let's look at that. I want to I use that to introduce Matthew 17. So Matthew 17, 1 says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now I got to stop a second because when you read this whole section, you, you'll have a better feel of it, but we're just jumping in in the midway. So he says, after six days, Mark and Luke also record timing of delay from what happened to Matthew 16. So what's that about? Like, let me give you some context. In Matthew 16, you can read it later, Jesus had been with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, a pagan city, and they'd gone to the the pagan center of the city, a shrine, a a, a rock cave structure. It's really fascinating. I'll show you one of these days. And and, and at that site, they called it the gates of hell, and they would would worship the god Pan, the false god Pan, at that site. And there was a lot of debauchery, and it was kind of a Vegas-type area. And Jesus went to that area, out of the way, and he said, on this rock... Not only the words that Jesus said about you're the Messiah, but on this kind of a soil, I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell can't stand in the way. And so then Matthew later then, in Matthew 17, says six days after that, six days removed from that big moment in the gospel, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them to a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. We'll talk about that in just a second. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Just, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Transfigured. Uh, this, this is huge, by the way. I, I mean, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John off by themselves, away from the crowds, away from the villages, even away from the other followers of his, his disciples and the crowds, and they go off by themselves, just the four of them, and it says he was transfigured. What does that mean? Because we don't use that word much. You know, I don't, I don't say I'm going to work, I've got this meeting, then a lunch thing, and then I'm going to be transfigured in the afternoon. Like, you don't say that word. Like, what are we talking about? It's the Greek word metamorphothē, which sounds a little familiar to us, right? In English, metamorphothē. Jesus morphed into something else, a, a metamorphosis-type process. What's happening here is Jesus is giving them a physical glimpse of his divinity, So Jesus was fully a man, but he was also fully God. And in that moment, 
where they had only seen the man's side before, in that moment, he kind of pulls back the curtain and lets them see him as God himself. He's not just a man. He's also God in the flesh. And in that moment, in that transfiguration, that metamorphosis, there's a whole bunch of miracles that happen all kind of back to back to back. So first he was transfigured, the metamorphosis. He was completely different. They could literally see his divinity in the, in the flesh. It says his face shone like the sun. You know, many scholars think this event happened at night because the disciples, if you read Mark and, and Luke, the disciples actually, uh, Peter, James, and John, actually woke up to see the light. So it makes sense they were sleeping. And then they didn't leave down the mountain until the next day. So it makes sense that they went to bed, Jesus has this event, and then the next day they wake up and go down the mountain. And if that's true, if this happened at night, then Jesus' face shining would have been a whole different level. You know, a little bit of light. You can have a cell phone light in the middle of the night and wake up your spouse. Like just a little light makes a big difference. And Jesus was glowing as God himself. It says his clothes became white as light. Again, if this is at night, a whole different level. And then Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Now, this would have been a miracle just because of the fact they had been dead for centuries. This would have been a miracle. Just, they, both, they both actually, at the end of their life, walked with God, and God took them away. So God takes Moses away on a, on a mountain. God takes Elijah away on a chariot. And for hundreds of years, they hadn't been there. And now they're here and with Jesus talking. That's a miracle enough, but it's bigger than that. Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets from God. So these guys were like the preeminent members of the Old Testament leaders. And Jesus is kind of on par with them. I mean, for a first century Jew, that would have been mind-blowing that, that somebody they walked with and knew is on par with Moses and Elijah. But it became very clear very quickly that he wasn't on par with Moses and Elijah. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than the law and the prophets. Jesus, God himself, and they could see all of that in that moment. And all of that became clear to them in that moment. Matthew 17, 4. Peter says to Jesus, I love Peter, by the way, because he reminds me of me. He says things, sometimes his mouth works faster than his brain, and he'll say things that he shouldn't say, and he feels like it needs to fill the air. That's what happens here. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I always thought it was him kind of being starstruck. Like if you were hanging out, uh, if you're, you know, in downtown Nashville and three uh, music stars that you're really fond of happen to be at a restaurant with you and you said, hey, let's, let's eat together and you're all eating lunch together. Like, it'd be, man, it's good we're here. Or if you saw three athletes together after a ball game or you saw, I mean, whatever, you would be just starstruck. I thought Peter was starstruck here. Good, Lord, it's good that we can be here with you three. This is awesome. And maybe that's what he was saying. But J.P. Lang points out that Peter's probably saying something else, something more. What I, I didn't really highlight is in Matthew 16, where Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and they, they mark that time to, to show the next story. Right after that, Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be arrested. He's going to die for the sins of mankind. And Peter, in impulsive fashion, says, never is going to happen. And not with me on watch. You're never going to do that. That's a terrible idea. Don't do that. And, Pete, and Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not, you're not speaking for God here. And now... Just a few days later, Peter and James and John are up on the mountain with Jesus. 
Moses and Elijah come. Jesus shows his divinity. And Peter's like, you know what? Jesus, this is a better idea than that Jerusalem suffering bit. It's good that we're here. Let's just stay here with Moses and Elijah. I'll build a couple of cabanas. James and John can get some snacks. We can just hang out up here, far from the Jerusalem bit, far from all that suffering nonsense. Let's just stay up here, just the six of us, and we'll have a ball up here. And isn't that how we all are tempted to be? Isn't it true that we all want to get to a place where life is easy with no suffering? Like that's some big goal and just imperative in our heart. And then when we get to those moments, we think, man, this should never change. This should never be different than this. This should always be easy like this. It's it's the human temptation to live in a struggle-free place, but it's never what scripture describes. In fact, look at verse five. Verse five says, while Peter was still speaking, this is a nice way of Matthew saying that God interrupted Peter. Like Peter, just, just shut that down before you get, say some embarrassing, because we're going to record this and people are going to read it thousands of years later. Just shut that down. While Peter was still speaking, it says, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard the voice, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. So this cloud comes down. It's the picture of the cloud coming down on the mountain when he met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. It's the picture of the the tent of meeting and the cloud would come or the cloud would lead them through the, the day. I mean, this was the presence of God and it descended upon the six of them on top of that mountain. And then a voice comes out and they saw Jesus as God. They saw uh, Moses and Elijah coming back after they'd been gone for hundreds of years and that didn't freak them out, but the voice freaked them out. So this is at least as good as James Earl Jones. I mean, we're not talking Liam Neeson and Morgan Freeman. This is, this is James Earl Jones territory, and it freaks them out because they know it's God. They're hearing the voice of God. Can you imagine how that must have changed Peter and James and John forever? I mean, think about what that would do to you. If you were up on a mountain and your friend, you realize, is not just your friend. Your friend's actually God. And then Moses and Elijah come and hang out and they're all talking. And then the voice and the cloud, like it would change you forever to see all of the miracles that we've, we've listed here before us. Well, we know it was impactful because Peter writes about it years later in Second Peter. It says, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They literally heard the voice of God and they were forever changed. They were forever gripped by it. And there's no other logical conclusion. You would have to be. And Peter continues in this passage. And as he continues, he makes a case that's really important for you to pick up. And the case is that as you understand God more clearly, as as your reverence for God increases, so will your reverence for his word through his writers and prophets. Look at verse 19. He says, because of that experience, the transfiguration, Matthew 17, we now have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. 
You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your heart as he did in ours. Peter's saying, because I audibly heard the voice of God, because I saw a glimpse of the deified Jesus, because I saw Moses and Elijah, I have even greater confidence in this book. I have even greater confidence in the words that God has given us through his prophets and his apostles. Verse 20 continues. It says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, no words here, ever came from the prophet's own understanding or human initiative. Let me, let me just stop a second. Sometimes you'll hear people today say, well, that was, that was what Paul thought in the day, but we've learned so much. Or that's what Peter thought at the time, but he's just a guy. We've learned so much. Peter's like, that's not how these words came to be. In fact, the next, verse, the next part of the verse says, no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. These are not Peter's words and Paul's words. These are God's words. The NIV translation says, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These words were written down by people, but under inspiration of God himself. And Peter's like, I I, I get it. You've not seen what I've seen. You've not heard what I've heard. You've not experienced what I've experienced. But if you had... Your trust in these words would be higher because my trust in these words went up as I came down the mountain. And I just want you to see it, he says. I, I think it's interesting when you, when you think back on that moment, Matthew 17. I think it's interesting what God did not say. You know, it's always good as you're studying to say, you know, what did God say? Great, that's, that's, a, that's a helpful thing to study. I think sometimes it's helpful to say, what else could God have said in this moment and why didn't he? I think it's interesting to kind of get a perspective. So God in Matthew 17 says, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then I put a blank because I think it's interesting what he says next. He could have said, this is my son whom I love, in him I'm well pleased. He is the Messiah. So if you weren't sure, if you thought he might be, you were having doubts, your questions, this is the guy. Would have cleared it up. Or he could have said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. He's going to die for your sins. So Peter, you you thought he shouldn't do it. He he was saying he's going to do it. Let me just settle it as God. It's going to happen. Or this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Don't freak out when the Romans arrest him because that's coming. That would have been very helpful information for them to know that was coming. He didn't say that. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The the conclusion from God of this guy being Jesus, this guy being the Savior, this guy being God in the flesh, is to listen to his words and, and do whatever they say. And Peter, years later, looking back, says, I've got greater trust in these words because of that moment with God, that moment with the deified Christ. You know, it's a connection this way all the way through the Bible. As people's understanding of God, as their reverence for God increases, their trust in his word goes up as well. Their priority of his word goes up. Their, their desire to, to understand and to cling into the word goes up as well. Or if it goes down, it goes down. Like they, they stay in, in conjunction together all the way through the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. Psalms 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. I'm picturing a, a shepherd writing this out on the uh, open field looking up at the scars. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea in jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Such a poetic picture. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth 
all the people of the world revere him because a God who can create all of this by his mouth, you better be you know, revering that. And the implication is, for God spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So when you see the stars, when you see the waters, it gives you more fear and reverence of God. When you have more fear and reverence of God, you have more trust in what it is he says, his authority. Hebrews 4.12 says this, God means what he says. What he says goes. God's powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying open to listen and obey, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one can resist God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what we do. As we understand who God is, our respect for God goes up. As our respect for God goes up, our trust in his words and commands goes up as well. When we understand them, when we don't quite understand, when it makes sense to us, when it doesn't make sense to us, it goes up together because we understand who God is and we trust his words. Psalm chapter one says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. I want you to notice the real subtle distinction here or or, uh, wordplay here. So he's talking about a tree drinking water. And you know, a tree doesn't drink water like an animal does. A tree doesn't drink water like a person does. You can't get a big bucket of water and find a hole in the tree and just pour it into the trunk. That doesn't work. It'll just rot the thing out. A tree puts its roots down, thousands of them, into the ground, deeper and deeper to get to the, to the wet soil, and they just soak up a little bit of water, a little bit of water, and it soaks it up, and it soaks it up, and it soaks it up. And David says the person who not only just reads the words of God or listens to the words of God, but the person who meditates on his law day and night, that person is going to soak it up and soak it up and soak it up. I mean, I think, he would, I think he would say, I'm stretching a little bit, but I think it's true. You know, just to hear the words of God or to, to listen to something on, a, on, on your commute or something, that's great. Do that. But if you don't take time to really think about it and really put in, if you don't meditate on it, you, you're not letting it soak in. But the word who meditates on it, who soaks the words up and soaks the words up, that person is going to be blessed. The title of today's message is a familiar one. If you've been around Wellspring a while, I've called this message Putting Down Roots. Because when you put down roots into the ways and words of God, it gives you strength in the middle of all kinds of storms. Last week I said many of us were fasting spiritually and doing it by accident. We didn't even know we were doing it. We're just going without God's nourishment. And today I would suggest that there's many of us who are not putting down roots and our roots are dry, our leaves are withered, our limbs are barren. We're hangry spiritually because we don't have, we don't have the nourishment coming from the roots. You know, if you don't know anything about trees and you see a, a, a tree whose leaves are brown, who doesn't have apples or, or fruit on the limbs, you, you might think there's a problem up there, but the Bible would say the problem's not there, the problem is down here, where the roots aren't pulling in nourishment like it needs. In the same way, spiritually, it's easy for us to look at this problem or that problem or that person and say, that's the problem in my life, but sometimes it's deeper than that, it's more spiritual than that. It's roots that are dry and cracked, it's not pulling in the nourishment, not sucking that up because we're not meditating on the words of God. We're too busy. One more. Isaiah 55 says, the rain and sun 
rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and, and bread for the hungry. God's making an analogy here. These are words from God. And he's using maybe the most important system in the world, the, the linchpin of the whole ecosystem. I mean, God's not using as an analogy some little sidebar item. This is the centerpiece of it all. I mean, think about it. If, if the whole earth went without precipitation for a couple of weeks, we'd probably all survive. It'd be, it'd be scary, but we'd probably all survive if last night was the last rain that any place in the world had for, for a month. That'd be scary, but we'd survive that. But what if the whole earth went without any precipitation for a year, if last night was the last rain we got anywhere on the globe for an entire year, would we survive that? Maybe. A lot of people would probably die, but we'd probably, some would survive it. What if we went five years? No shot. If the earth didn't have any precipitation for five years, the whole thing shuts down. When God makes an analogy, he's not describing a trivial matter. He's saying that the way that the, the rain and the snow literally keep life happening. This is an existential matter. Without rain and snow, life ceases. Now with that in mind, look at his analogy. He says, the rain and snow come down from heavens. They stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer, bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out. It always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Spiritually speaking, this is existential. Without nourishment from God, life ceases spiritually. Now you can continue to live physically, and maybe people who don't know you well won't notice, but you'll notice the difference. It'll be unmistakable because life will cease. Your leaves metaphorically will wither. Your, your roots metaphorically will be dry and cracked. Your limbs barren, physically living, but spiritually completely stunted and dying. I want you to think about Peter for just a minute. So we said that, that, that Peter went to bed that night up on the mountain. It's him and James and John and Jesus. And he wakes up to a light Kind of like, you know, somebody turns the light on in the bathroom or something and it, it, it brings you to wake. Like, but this light is so intense and it's the face of Jesus and his clothes are lighting up and, and, and Jesus, Peter's there on the mountain and he sees Jesus and then he sees Moses and Elijah and somehow he knows that's Moses and Elijah. And then a, a cloud comes down and a voice speaks out from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And don't you know that the only reasonable response from Peter is to say, yes, sir, whatever you, whatever you say. Like whatever comes out of his mouth next, I'm going to do it. And then Peter's on his face before God and he's, he's, he's shaking, trembling before the words of God. And he's saying in his head, he's purposing in his heart, whatever comes out of his mouth next, I'm going to do it. I'm never going to make a mistake again. I'm always going to follow. Now we know Peter failed again. God's grace is really important. But I want that kind of reverence. I want the kind of reverence that says, God, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. You just say the word, and you can count on me giving it my shot. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to need your grace. I'm going to need your forgiveness. But God, I want to be the kind of follower of Jesus that says, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. 
What would change in your life if that was true of you? Like, how would you do your time different if you believed that the words of God were the most important, th- like rain and snow from heaven? What would you do if you, what would your, how would your life change if you believed that these words were like food for, your, for a hungry soul? What would it be like if you realized that if I don't give my, my family these words, I'm going to be not giving them what I need to as a parent. Like It's my responsibility to, to feed my kids. Like How would that change the way you prioritize things? How would that change what you cut out or what you add into your life? I think if I really believe the words that I say I believe, that we put up on the screen today and we've read out of this book, my life would look completely different than what it does now. I think many in our culture are hangry and we think it's the brown leaves or we think it's the, the barren limbs, but it's a lot deeper than that. It's spiritual and it's time for us to fix that with the help of God. Why don't you bow your heads? God, I want to ask that you would help us to, to understand, as, as I think Peter and James and John clearly did, the importance of having those moments with you. God, you, you gave them that moment. You let them see your, your face shine. You let them see the cloud descend. You let them hear the voice. That's probably not in the cards for us. But would you give us the moment, God, that helps us to see that you're in charge, that you're the creator, that you're the one who's delivered us, the Messiah, and you've called us just to listen to you. You've not called us to some feats of grandeur or some amazing thing beyond our ability. You're just saying, just listen to me. And when I say things you believe and trust, put those to action. When I say things that seem out of step for you, meditate on those words and align your life, not based on your thoughts, but on mine. And I can't stand before God. I can't stand before this room acting like I've always done that. I repent, God, for times when I've I've trusted my own instincts or my own ways ahead of your word. We submit ourselves, God, to you in reverent fear and worship, honor to your son Jesus and to his word. We pray in his name. Amen.